So far, we've spent uh, two weeks looking at John chapter 6, and we've seen how that chapter is dominated by references to bread. In the New Testament context, bread had much more significance than it does today in our society. For us, bread is just a part of our diet, maybe a very minor part for some of us. But in New Testament times, bread was the essential core of people's diet. It was crucial for life. And as we hear about bread in John chapter 6, we have to keep that in the front of our minds, how important bread really was in this time and this culture. And to begin with, in John 6, the kind of bread we heard about was bread baked in the oven. At the start of John 6, Jesus miraculously provided that kind of bread for thousands of people. The crowds who received that bread were very excited, understandably, and they chased after Jesus because they wanted more of it. But instead of giving them more bread from the oven, Jesus started teaching them about bread from heaven. If bread from the oven is what we need for physical life, then bread from heaven is what we need for eternal life. And Jesus said to the crowds, you've received the first kind of bread from me, bread from the oven. Now what you need to realize is that I can give you the second kind of bread as well. Bread from heaven. I can give you what you need for eternal life. But then Jesus went even further. Having said he could give them what they needed for eternal life, then Jesus announced that he was what they needed for eternal life. He said, I am the bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. Now we all know that to benefit from bread, you have to eat it. Bread does us no good if we just look at it. And so the obvious question is, when Jesus describes himself as bread, does he expect us to eat him in order to benefit from him? And if we're not supposed to eat him, why does he call himself bread? Those are the obvious questions, and in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to answer them. And his answers are going to be so offensive to people, we might say his answers are going to be so indigestible and unpalatable that many of the people who have been following Jesus stop following him. So as we read this, let's ask ourselves, does this offend you? Do you find this indigestible and unpalatable? We're going to pick up at John chapter 6, verse 41. You'll find that in page 1070 in the church Bibles or in the larger print Bibles, 1658. John chapter 6, verse 41, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter in verse 71. Jesus has just been describing himself as the bread from heaven, the source of eternal life, sent from heaven by God the Father. And verse 41 tells us, at this, the Jews there began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes 
has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food. And my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. This is God's word. And it asks us three questions. Three searching questions. And the first question is this. Will you rely on the grace of God... Or your own wisdom. The setting here is a place called Capernaum, and that's significant because this is Jesus' home turf. Although he grew up in Nazareth, it seems by this stage he and his family had moved to Capernaum. So many of these people know Jesus, and equally significant in their minds is the fact that they know Jesus' parents. Now, even if his father Joseph is dead by this point, which seems likely, even so, these people had known him, and they certainly know Mary. And knowing Jesus' humble, down-to-earth family, these people just cannot swallow what Jesus is saying about himself. Look again at verse 41. The Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? 
How can he now say, I came down from heaven? This guy has delusions of grandeur. He didn't come from heaven, he came from down the road. His father's a carpenter, not the Lord of the universe. Jesus isn't going to catch us out with this stuff about coming down from heaven. We're too smart to fall for that. And notice in response to this, Jesus does not try to defend himself. He doesn't try and explain, oh no, you see, my mother was a virgin when I was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Joseph raised me, but he isn't my literal father. Jesus could have said that, but he doesn't dignify their objection with that kind of response. Instead of defending the announcements he's just made about himself, Jesus says in verse 43, Stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. Instead of defending himself, Jesus attacks the confidence these people have in their own wisdom and insight. They think they can sort out matters of eternal life by their own cleverness. They think they can sort out the truth about Jesus by their own knowledge and investigation. But Jesus says, you're wrong. Grasping the truth about me and receiving eternal life, those are things that depend on the grace of God. No one can come to me unless the Father draws them. Meaning unless the Father pulls them to me. Now, it would be a big mistake for you and I to read this and think, well then, I have no responsibility here. All I need to do is wait until the Father draws me to Jesus. But that's not what Jesus is saying. This whole passage is a call to accept his words and believe in him. What Jesus is doing here is pushing us away from reliance on our own wisdom and pushing us toward reliance on God's grace. Jesus is saying, the way to eternal life is not through your own ideas of what you think is possible. The way to eternal life is to realize how limited your own understanding actually is. How ineffectual your own abilities are. Realize that. Realize that eternal life depends on God's understanding and ability. And then you're ready to receive eternal life as a gracious gift from God. Look again at verse 45. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. The point is, Human wisdom will never arrive at the truth about Jesus. Only the person taught by God can see Jesus for who he is and come to rely on him as the bread of life. God the Father has to do that gracious work in us before we can come to Jesus. But we might ask then, well, why isn't this an excuse for us to sit back and wait? till God teaches us and draws us to Jesus. Well, the quotation here in verse 45 is from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 54. And what is significant about it is, in the context of Isaiah 54, this is a promise of salvation. God is speaking to Israelites, Israelites who at that point in their history are devastated by defeat and exile because of their sin, and through the prophet Isaiah, God gives that people a promise. Your children will receive God's grace. 
In the future, they will be taught by God. They'll be graciously shown the way to be reconciled to God. They will be given knowledge of his salvation. And by quoting that promise here, Jesus is saying to this crowd in front of him, what you need is not to rely on your own smarts and your own understanding. What you need is to humble yourselves. Stop being so proud of your own wisdom. Instead, accept that you need to be taught by God. And when you come with that humility, you will be taught by God. You will learn who I truly am. The Father will draw you to me. So Jesus is not saying sit back until God draws you. He's saying give up your pride. Acknowledge your powerlessness and your need. Stop thinking that your skepticism about Jesus is down to cleverness. Accept that you are skeptical about Jesus because you need to be taught by God. Humble yourself and you will receive God's grace. That's the challenge. Will you rely on the grace of God or your own wisdom? It's a challenge for you and me today, just as it was for this crowd in Capernaum. But in the next verses, Jesus goes further. Earlier, we mentioned the obvious truth that to benefit from bread, you have to eat it. Which raises the question, when Jesus describes himself as bread... Does he expect us to eat him in order to benefit from him? We've now arrived at the point where Jesus answers that question. In verse 48, he repeats his earlier statement, I am the bread of life. In verse 51, he again says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Okay, so Jesus is what we need for eternal life. But how on earth do we eat him? Well, what Jesus says next makes it even more puzzling. Look at the second half of verse 51. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food. And my blood is real drink. First, Jesus said, I am the bread from heaven you have to eat. Now he says, let me explain that to you. What you actually have to eat is my flesh. Oh, and you have to drink my blood as well. That's how you get eternal life from me. How are we to understand this? Well, the key to understanding it comes at the end of verse 51. Jesus says, This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Jesus is talking about the reason he came from heaven and took on human flesh. He did it in order eventually to offer himself as a sacrifice so the world could have life. Back in chapter 1, John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the Old Testament, God set up a whole sacrificial system for the Israelites. And the basic point of that system was this. Sin leads to death. Your sin and my sin deserves death. So either we die... Or something else dies in our place as our substitute, a substitutionary sacrifice. 
That's what all those lambs and bulls were teaching. Month after month, year after year, as they were slaughtered one by one and hoisted up onto the altar. Sin leads to death. If I'm going to live, something else has to die in my place. Those lambs and bulls didn't actually pay for sin. They were teaching the lesson. They were preparing the way for the true sacrificial lamb whose death would pay for sin. John the Baptist identified Jesus as that true lamb. And here Jesus confirms it. He will give his flesh to earn life for the world. He will die in the place of sinners so they can live. Jesus' death on the cross is going to be described at the end of John's gospel. But already, Jesus is insisting his death is the only way for sinners like you and me to have eternal life. When he says we must eat his flesh and drink his blood, he means we must rely on his sacrifice to provide us with eternal life. We can see that if we set verse 40 alongside verse 54. Back in verse 40, Jesus said, My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Now in verse 54, Jesus says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Notice how those verses parallel each other. They're both giving the requirement for eternal life and being raised up at the last day. Verse 40 says we must look to Jesus and believe in him. Verse 54 tells us how we look to him and believe in him. We look to him not as a wise philosopher, not as a helpful teacher or a good example, We look to him and believe in him as the one who gave his flesh and blood as a sacrifice for our sin. To eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood means to rely on him as the Savior who died in our place. And that reliance is beautifully symbolized for us every time we share the Lord's Supper together. As we eat the bread and drink the wine, we're illustrating the need to rely on his death in a similar way to how we rely on food and drink. Those things are what we need for physical life, and his death is what we need for eternal life. So after being challenged, first of all, to rely on the grace of God instead of our own wisdom, now we are being asked, will you rely on Jesus' sacrificial death as the only source of eternal life? And we need to be open and honest and say that many people take offense at this. This message has been offensive from the beginning. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. We read that earlier in 1 Corinthians. There Paul says this message is a stumbling block to many people. They can't get past it. They can't accept it. And so the question is, are you one of those people? Do you like the idea of knowing God, but shrink back from this teaching? This teaching that says the only way to know him is through the flesh and blood of Jesus, offered as a sacrifice on the cross. If you find that offensive, Then hear Jesus' words in verse 53. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. There is no other way to life 
There's no other way to feed on Jesus the bread of life except by relying on his gruesome death. And as Christians, we must never think that we can move on from this. Look at verse 56. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Yes, there must be a moment when we come to Jesus for the first time and put our trust in him as our crucified Savior. But after that, every day of our lives, we must continue to rely on Jesus' sacrificial death. That's how we remain in him and deepen our fellowship with him. Feeding on Jesus is not a one-time event. It's the repeated activity of a lifetime. The life of the Christian is a life of centering our hope on Jesus who died in our place. That's what Jesus teaches. And for many people, his teaching is simply unacceptable. Look at verse 59. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? When they call this a hard teaching, they do not mean it's hard to understand. They understand it perfectly well. What they're saying is, this is hard to take. They find it offensive. And notice who these people are. They're Jesus' disciples. Not the twelve disciples. We'll hear about their reaction later. But these are people who up to this point have been following Jesus. Literally following him around the country or at least around the edge of the Sea of Galilee. Following him also in the sense of looking to him as their teacher. These are people who've been associating with Jesus. But they find what Jesus has just said to be offensive. What is offensive about it? Well, if we assume this is referring to everything Jesus has said in the synagogue, then it starts back in verse 25. When they come to him excited about his ability to care for their daily needs. And Jesus clearly is interested in their daily needs. That's why he gave food to thousands of them on the other side of the lake. But when they chase back round the lake looking for more of the same, Jesus abruptly tells them not to focus so much on their daily needs. He tells them to worry about their eternal needs. No doubt they thought that was a bit hard to take. And then, as we've seen this morning, Jesus told the crowd that their own wisdom will get them nowhere. They need to abandon hope in their own wisdom and hope in God's grace. That is certainly hard to take. Who appreciates being told they can't come to Jesus unless the Father draws them? Who likes to be told they are that powerless? And then, as we've just seen, being told our only hope for salvation is to rely on a rejected man who died in humiliation. Isn't that hard to take? These disciples of Jesus find it all hard to take. And today, many disciples find it hard to take. Many people who have an interest in Jesus are much more focused on their daily needs than their eternal ones. They much prefer the idea that they chose Jesus rather than the idea that he chose them. They like the thought that they're actually doing Jesus a favor rather than the thought that they're hopelessly lost without him. 
and utterly dependent on his grace. And when it comes to his sacrificial death, well, many so-called disciples of Jesus find that quite a bit embarrassing. They prefer to focus instead on his life. Let's talk about that. His miracles, his good example. Let's not talk about his blood, please. Today, just like here in Capernaum, there are plenty of people who consider themselves followers of Jesus, but who are actually offended by Jesus' teaching. Yes, there are things about Jesus they want to latch on to, but they find his actual words to be unacceptable. At least the kind of stuff he says here they find unacceptable. And look at Jesus' answer to these offended disciples in verse 61. Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Jesus says, if you find this teaching hard to take, what are you going to do when you see me in all my divine power and glory? If my teaching is offensive to you, you're not going to enjoy meeting me as the risen king who comes to judge the world. In verse 63, the flesh counts for nothing means your human thinking counts for nothing. Your fleshly assessment of things will lead you to take offense at my teaching. But my words, as offensive as they are to your human thinking, Jesus says, my words are full of the Spirit and life. So Jesus is giving these offended disciples an ultimatum. To be a true disciple, a true follower, you have to accept my words as full of the Spirit and life. You cannot follow me while considering my words to be unacceptable. And so to all of us who claim to be followers of Jesus, this is the challenge. Will you rely on Jesus' words as the words of eternal life? However much they might go against your inclination or your orientation or your natural human outlook, will you rely on Jesus' words? Here in Capernaum, this ultimatum from Jesus does provoke a decision. Look at verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They make their choice. But some make a different choice. It seems we're to picture here the large crowd melting away slowly until only the 12 disciples are left in front of Jesus. Verse 67. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. In verses 68 and 69, Peter realizes eternal life is at stake here. And however much Jesus' teaching might challenge and unsettle Peter, when it comes to eternal life, Peter realizes there is simply no one else to go to. 
There is nowhere else to turn. Jesus is the Holy One of God. He and His words are the only way to eternal life. He is the bread of life. Now we might like it if our passage ended there with Peter's powerful confession. And certainly Peter's confession is recorded here as the example for us to follow. But it is not where the passage ends. Instead, Jesus' reply to Peter's confession is this disturbing statement about Judas. At least, as John writes this, he fills in the detail for us that becomes obvious later on. Judas is the one Jesus is talking about. But here, Jesus doesn't name Judas. He doesn't single Judas out. He just listens to Peter's wonderful confession of faith. Then Jesus looks around the circle, these 12 men standing in front of him, and he says, I have chosen you, yet one of you is a devil. As far as they know, Jesus could be talking about any of them. What are we to make of this? Well, clearly when Jesus says, I have chosen you, in this context he means, I have chosen you for the incredible privilege of belonging to this group of disciples. When we look at all four Gospels, they show us the care and the intentionality that went into Jesus' selection of these men. Luke tells us Jesus spent the night in prayer before choosing these specific people. He chose them to be with him for the duration of his ministry. They traveled with him. They ate with him. They shared a common purse with him. They were given that incredible privilege. And yet one of them was a devil. Meaning, one of them would prove to be committed to Satan rather than committed to Jesus. One of them would be offended by Jesus and turn against him. And it's so easy for you and me to read this and think, yeah, Judas, he was the rotten one. He was the bad apple. But consider this, in another place, Jesus turns to Peter and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. The context there was that Jesus had spoken about his coming suffering and death, and Peter tried to rebuke him. The suffering Savior didn't suit Peter's sensibilities at that point. Peter was offended by Jesus' words. And as Jesus pointed out, that is a dangerous position to be in. And here, in a very similar way, Jesus is challenging the whole group of twelve. They dare not be complacent. They must keep feeding on Jesus. They must keep relying on him or they may find themselves offended by him. And you and I need to hear this too. Because it's one thing to make the great confession that yes, we rely on Jesus' words as the words of eternal life. It's a great confession to make. But we need to go on trusting his words. Trusting them over our own wisdom and our own inclinations. And that is going to be a challenge for us again and again and again. We need to keep looking to Jesus' sacrificial death as our only hope for eternal life. We need to keep feeding on him in that way every day. 
so that we don't attach our hope to other things. Now, in the case of Judas, he continued outwardly as a follower of Jesus. But in his heart, he was offended by Jesus. What we discover is that Jesus didn't conform to Judas's human wisdom. And so in the end, because he trusted his own wisdom, Judas betrayed Jesus. Now we need to be clear, you and I are certainly not condemned to end up like Judas. We're not. But hadn't we better be sobered up by the example of Judas? God's grace is available to us in Jesus. Jesus' death is enough for us. His words are the words of eternal life. And so every day, let's keep looking to Jesus as the bread of life. The one we rely on totally in life and in death. Let's not be offended by what we've heard this morning. Let's not decide that this is a hard teaching we need to walk away from. Let's respond to this by running to our loving Savior and feeding again on His saving grace. Or maybe for you, coming to Him for the very first time to feed on His grace. Our next songs help us to do that together. I will glory in my Redeemer, And all my days I will sing this song of gladness.
Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen.